This is Snails and Oysters. Okay, you you say hello and welcome to Snails and Oysters, and I'll say okay. the bisexual movie podcast. Love that. Okay, hello, welcome to Snails and Oysters. It's the bisexual movie podcast. Our options are limited. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I think that should be our official slogan for this show. Uh, so yeah, this is uh, our first episode. Yeah, I think we're starting off really strong with a fantastic movie, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Made by a very talented casting crew. Uh, how have you been, Allie? What have you been up to? Um, I have been good. I have my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Hey! Yeah. Um, I felt really good. A team of very young National Guardsmen <laughs> delivered it to me <laughs> um, in Brooklyn. And yeah, how have you been? I've been good. I'm I'm double vax Moderna full immunity, baby. I, wow. I've been going out and kissing my friends on the lips. Uh, <laughs> no, I actually I went to I'm very sunburned today. Obviously, the listeners can't see this, but I'm sunburned today because yesterday was May Day, uh, International Workers Day. So I, I went out with my my local DSA chapter, hit the streets, I got a tan that. line where my mask was. Uh, so I have very white lips and very red nose. <laughs> But yeah, today I'm just cooking a lot. <laughs> oh, I love that. Today I had a picnic, which was really nice. And I went... Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, I went a little overboard. I got like cheese and a baguette and chocolate covered almonds. I love going like picnic overboard. That sounds just absolutely delightful. It was really nice. It was nice to be outside. Today was like the first really warm day in Brooklyn. Um, this isn't just a podcast about bisexuals. This is actually a bi-coastal bisexual podcast. Oh my God, that's true. I, yeah. yeah, I'm in LA. Allie is in Brooklyn. Uh, so yeah. it's bi coastal, bi weekly, bisexual. <laughs> yes. yeah. We're um, we're gonna lose our damn minds. <laughs> <laughs> for for reference for the listener, we we recorded a lot of the the first few episodes, the the actual movie discussion way earlier in the pandemic, and it's just taken us a while to like get up and running. So Yeah. Uh, the the most noticeable difference is going to be the audio quality. My audio is going to sound terrible because I think I recorded this episode in my literal closet, just on my <laughs> laptop microphone. So yeah, uh, don't don't expect these dulcet tones to be so high quality for for the next few episodes. <laughs> I sound perfect at all times. Absolutely. What else should we say in our intro? I don't know. Oh, we could talk a little bit about how do we pick our movies how do we decide yes what is included in what we've been calling the bi canon yeah because you'll you'll hear this in one of our upcoming episodes quick tease uh for the portrait of lady on fire we have a, a long conversation about whether or not we can really include portrait in our list of bi movies because you know it, the the only on-screen relationship is between two women even if they discuss others and obviously i don't want to spoil the the conversation from that episode but we can talk about uh you know where we landed what what our our yardstick is yeah. for whether or not we can claim a movie for the bi canon maybe we'll cut this out but i want to say i this conversation actually was started by my friend maddie 
who is very famous on TikTok for linguistic content. Um, and I think as a linguist, she has a master's from Cambridge, the Cambridge University. And, very fancy. Uh, very fancy. And she will soon be a PhD student. And her first question about the podcast was, what was your methodology for deciding how a character is by? And so I appreciate Maddie's question. <laughs> There's very few movies, movies with queer sexuality in which a character is explicitly labeled, I would say. Very few. Like, it's, you know, of the, of the niche that is queer cinema, there's an even, like, smaller niche of explicit identification. Yeah, that's what, it's a niche within a niche. It's, it's a Russian <laughs> doll of niches. So if we, if we just sat around waiting for movies where characters say explicitly, I am bisexual, this would be an incredibly short podcast. Yeah, so our methodology has been, has this character expressed interest romantically, sexually, intimate interest, in men and women that's been our our light uh flexible methodology and i want to say because my friend maddie brought this up she said you know a lot of women who later identify as lesbians do date men earlier at some point so i want to say that we know that sexuality is really complicated and we're definitely if any character explicitly states themselves as a lesbian or as gay we would not include that film exactly so so for example like maureen and rent has had relationships with men in the past but identifies as a lesbian through the course of the of the movie so we won't talk about rent you know there there, there won't be a rent episode of this show and similarly like the kids are all right julianne moore's character has a relationship with a man but identifies as a lesbian so we we take her word as gospel um, so long as someone doesn't explicitly claim a different queer identity, we won't include them. And it's it's different for straight people because it's very common for queer people to claim to be straight while they're just closeted. So, uh, for example, in Talented Mr. Ripley, he claims not to be a homosexual. Um, but that, you know, that's so much more culturally fraught. So so there's a lot more leeway on the other side of the coin, so to speak. A hundred percent. What we're trying to do in this podcast is not definitively label characters forever in movies as bisexual. I think we're more trying to like, we're more trying to talk about how bisexuality is portrayed and almost use it like a lens. I'm not sure I'm using the word lens correctly because I'm not in grad school. I'm just a humble person with a bachelor's degree acquired long ago. But I'd say we're not trying to be really definitive on like, this is exactly what this character is. We're more just trying to explore what it means when someone is portrayed as having an interest in both sexes and how that plays out on screen and how negative tropes come up and positive tropes come up and like the effect that that has on audiences and on the larger film. What do you think of that, Nat? I, I think that is phrased so much better than I would have <laughs> <laughs> said it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that that's exactly right. We're, we're, you know, obviously fictional characters are fictional. They are not real. And so it only makes sense to label their sexualities so far because, you know, with they only exist within the bounds of the, you know, piece of fiction. That's the entirety of their existence. Uh, and so we're, we're just trying to look at how the concept of bisexuality is portrayed. Also, I would just say that this is just a really fun excuse for me to like watch more films, watch more queer films, which is something I love to do. And I just welcome all our listeners. And by all our listeners, I mean uh, my sister, 
my mom <laughs> my sister yeah my mom yeah i'm not even 100 percent <laughs> confident my sister will listen to it my boyfriend did say we could listen to it maybe while we fall asleep some nights because we listen to podcasts <laughs> occasionally um, that's adorable probably my agent will listen to this to make sure that i i don't say anything that warrants me getting dropped something important we should establish early on is nat has a real life blue check and that he has an agent <laughs> <laughs> i have a real life blue check despite not having a blue check yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah and i just really welcome all two of our listeners to come on this journey with us watch the films they're really fun. I think beyond talking about queerness, I learned a lot about like film history and just was like never unhappy to watch one of, well, okay, there's a couple times. <laughs> there's a couple where we've been unhappy. Uh, I, I want to, I want to butt in to, to welcome our future listeners who, who will come back to this episode after we have taken over, uh, the podcasting space and totally. we'll, we'll find it remarkably charming how humble we are in this first episode now, now looking back, you know, six months from now when we have 1.2 billion listeners every episode. That is the goal. Uh, so I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to welcome those, those masses who have come to, uh, you know, taste the fruit of our wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, with that, I think, uh, I don't know. What do you think, Ali? I think it's about time we, we shut up and start talking about Talented Mr. Ripley. The last thing I'll say is that since watching The Talented Mr. Ripley, I read the original novel by Patricia Highsmith. And I would just say, if you watch the movie and you like the movie, you gotta read the book. And what I love about it is it's not one of those cases where you're like, oh, the book is better. You actually come away with a great appreciation for the film and the book. Man, that sounds really nice, but unfortunately I can't read, so. The Talent of Mr. Ripley is a 1999 psychological thriller starring Matt Damon as the titular character, Jude Law as shipping heir Dickie Greenleaf, and Gwyneth Paltrow as Dickie's fiancée and aspiring novelist Marge Sherwood. Based on the 1955 novel of the same name by Patricia Highsmith, 1999's Ripley was adapted and directed by Anthony Miguela. It all starts when pianist Tom Ripley borrows a friend's Princeton jacket to attend a high society party in New York. Their shipping magnate, Herbert Greenleaf, assumes Ripley must know his son, Dickie. Who, you know, actually went to Princeton. And Greenleaf hires Ripley to fly to Italy and convince his trust fund baby to come back to New York. When he arrives in Italy, Ripley quickly befriends Dickie and Marge by admitting that Greenleaf sent him. Dickie and Ripley agree to coordinate their stories and string Greenleaf along for the money. Ripley becomes enamored not only with Dickie's luxuriant lifestyle, but Dickie himself. There are several scenes of escalating sexual tension, where it's clear that Ripley is in love with Dickie, but how Dickie feels about Ripley is ambiguous. But soon it's a moot point because Dickie gets tired of Ripley and spends more time with his friend Freddie Miles. Played by the amazing Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, get used to recognizing the cast. This movie is star-fucking-studded. Ripley tries to reestablish their friendship, but everything he does just pushes Dickie further away. When Daddy Greenleaf finally fires Ripley, Dickie takes him on a trip to San Remo as a farewell tour. While there, Dickie and Ripley get into a heated argument on a boat. Dickie ends their friendship, reaffirms his intent to marry Marge, and insults Ripley. 
Impulsively, Ripley kills Dickie with an oar. And as we all do when we've accidentally murdered our friend we're in love with, uh, Ripley steals Dickie's identity. Which was insanely easy to do in 1955. And he begins living in Rome as both Dickie Greenleaf and Tom Ripley. As Dickie, he begins dating American socialite Meredith Logue. Played by Kate Blanchett, again, studded. His double life is fun for a second, but falls apart when Marge arrives in Rome, looking for Dickie. Ripley pulls off a series of high-risk gambits to convince everyone that Dickie is still alive. He's able to bamboozle Marge and her friend Peter Smith Kingsley, but his plans go off the rails when Freddie Miles shows up at Dickie's apartment and finds Ripley. Freddie realizes the truth, so Ripley says, well, time to kill again, and bludgeons Freddie to death. Soon the Italian police suspect that Dickie murdered Freddie, so Ripley kills Dickie again by writing a suicide note that claims responsibility for Freddie's death. From there, Ripley travels to Venice under his own name and becomes close friends with Peter Smith Kingsley. Ripley nearly murders Marge when she finds Dickie's ring in his apartment, but luckily for him, this is the 1950s, so everyone assumes Marge is just PMSing and ignores her. Greenleaf even bequests Dickie's trust fund to Ripley, because Ripley was such a good friend. So Ripley is free to sail away to Greece with his sweet Peter Smith Kingsley, who becomes the lover he always wanted. And they live happily ever... Just kidding. Turns out Meredith Logue is on the boat with them, and she not only still thinks Ripley is Dickie, but she's also a friend of Peter's. Oh no! A classic two witnesses, one boat situation. So Ripley opts to kill his beloved Peter to preserve his ruse, leaving him secure but alone. That's the bare bones of the plot, but how does Ripley's bisexuality play into it? Is it a humanizing element of a flawed killer or just another symptom of Ripley's psychopathy? In short, what the fuck, movie? Let's discuss. so psyched so uh the reason i suggested this movie because i think i was the one who suggested it yeah i'm pretty sure you were so in the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was like organizing virtual hangouts before it's like wow (laughs) if i am on another zoom call uh i was part of a zoom party where everyone had to present a powerpoint and one of the guys presented a powerpoint about the talented Mr. Ripley, and he said, this is the best bisexual movie about murder on a boat that I've ever seen. God, I would love to spend this entire podcast delving into this Zoom party you were at where everyone was giving PowerPoint presentations. It was really fun. So then I was like, I was like, okay, I have to watch this movie. And then when you were like, we should do this podcast, I was like, okay, a second reason to watch the movie, now I'll finally watch it. Most recently I had heard about it because I think Karen Chi, the comedian on Twitter, was like tweeting about how hot everyone in Mr. Ripley is mm. um, and how it's all like Italian beaches, so they're like semi-nude the entire time, and I was like, okay, that that does look very enjoyable. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, I'm there for the bodies. I, I did really appreciate seeing Gwyneth Paltrow pre-goop. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I felt like I could enjoy her purely with no feelings of like by enjoying her i'm also supporting vaginal eggs that cost 300 dollars. and like young matt damon before he turned into a grouchy middle-aged man from boston okay i'm curious what you think because i am convinced that matt damon i mean i think he was very adorable in this movie when he wasn't killing but i kind of think he's one of those rare people who got hotter as he got older 
Oh, definitely. He 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 looked kind of dorky when he was young, like in like a, a cute way. He definitely was like hotter now that his face is a little more like rugged or something. Yeah, like when he smiles when he was younger, it just looked weird. Whereas now when he smiles, it looks like, oh, that's his face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Matt Damon is one of those people where like the constituent parts of his face are not attractive, but together they work and become more attractive. Right. Yeah, so I knew that murder would happen at some point in this movie because of the PowerPoint party. Um, But I had no idea how much murder. (laughs) That's funny because I knew it was a movie about a, like, serial slash spree killer. But I didn't realize how, I guess, sympathetic it would be. Like, I didn't realize he was the protagonist. What did you think of the movie out of five stars? (laughs) It's, it's, I can't. I can't give it like a, a just a rating because uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, as soon as I finished watching it, the f- first thing that went through my head was this is the bisexual silence of the lambs. <laughs> because like I have trans friends and they'll talk about like I've talked to uh, one of them about how Silence of the Lambs is objectively a great movie. Like it's really well made, but it also perpetuates some of the most hurtful stereotypes about trans people imaginable. And I feel like Ripley does the same thing for bisexuals. Like, it's different because he's the protagonist and it's treated somewhat sympathetically. But it's still, like... He's definitely not, like, a great member of our community. I wouldn't, like... <laughs> I wouldn't nominate him. For a GLAAD award? <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be, like, send him to the LGBTQUN as the bi representative, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And... And, like, uh, not just the murder, but also, like, the, um, also sort of the, the whole, like, he's clingy, he's, like, it seems like it's, it's almost like an aspirational thing at times that he's attracted to. It's like, he's not just bi in that he's attracted to, like, women and men. He's just, like, attracted to, like, wealth and class and, like, money. And I don't know what, there, we don't have a word for that sexuality yet, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I think Gold Digger is the closest we have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it does have a feeling of sort of like a like a social, a dangerous, evil social climber sort of thing, which is a very uh, <laughs> problematic stereotype in its own right. Yeah, it does. It kind of has this feeling of, you know, watch out rich people because those there are people who want to like be on the same plane as you, but they're all sociopaths. Like People need to know their place, you know, like stay in your lane. But then mixing social classes is dangerous. Yes, it will only ever result in death. <laughs> you know, you can argue the opposite and be like, no, it's about like, you know, how wealth corrupts these people or something. But it's like, no, only one of them is a murderer and it's the poor one. Yeah. This is one of those movies where it's like, if this movie existed in a vacuum, then you couldn't make an argument about it being problematic because nothing in the text is technically problematic because you can just say, well, it's this one bad person. It's individual, yeah. But because it exists in a larger social context, it plays into a lot of fucked up tropes. Are we going to swear on this podcast? I think we should. Yeah. I mean, we can always decide to bleep it later. That would be funny, I think, if we were like, (laughs) this is a bisexual podcast where we, like, cannot say the F word. (laughs) But also, I get it. I get it. We want it to be clean. Yeah, we, we're looking for sponsors. <laughs> yeah, we, we need family-friendly sponsors who are cool with bisexuals. <laughs> what, what did you think of the movie overall, like, quality-wise? I really loved it. I thought 
I've had this feeling that like what I love part of what I loved about it was the length it was pretty long and I kind of felt like if that movie was made or remade today that like you know the half hour 45 minutes of like setting up the characters I feel like that would be squished into like 20 minutes yeah I I like the pacing of it a lot it let all the characters develop and the re relationships develop but what was so interesting is I feel like the movie almost really starts once Ripley kills Dickie and like kind of assumes his identity. Even though everything that happens up to that is like really important. I, yeah, I really liked the like stylishness of it too. It felt like a very like slick kind of, kind of movie in the best possible way. I actually, I took like two notes while I was watching the movie and one of them was how are we still in the opening credits <laughs> like the opening credit sequence Dude, alone they went on for so long no that was truly shocking I was like what film had this much respect for everyone who worked on it <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the final credit doesn't land until he's like on the boat for Italy you're you almost get the sense that it's gonna go for the whole fucking movie <laughs> I know, like you're gonna see the key grips name pop up when he kills Jude Law. <laughs> Can we just talk really quickly about how gross the boat scene was? Oh my god, so effectively gross. So fucking gnarly, like when he when Jude Law like like for context for the viewer, uh, Matt Damon hits Jude Law across the face with a paddle in a moment of fury, and Jude Law turns around and three separate cuts on his face burst open on camera like i i did not think they were going to show that much on camera it was oh my god not and it's so effective because the rest of the movie is so glamorous and so slick and then there's this moment of brutality at the midpoint pure horror and then Ugh. and then when oh that moment where then he's dead and he's put his arm around him so uh so like cr like Creepy in how human it is. <laughs> oh, so creepy, yeah. Yeah. And like and it's called back to later when uh Ripley bludgeons uh Matt Damon bludgeons Philip Seymour Hoffman to death with the statue head, and then it rolls away and you see the that uh Philip Seymour Hoffman's blood is in exactly the same spot on the statue's head that it that uh Jude Law's blood was on his head. Yeah, that's such a good catch. Oh my god, I didn't catch that then. That was a great visual storytelling moment. It was also just, like, so star-studded. Like, Philip Seymour Hoffman? Holy moly. Yeah. Also, just a quick tangent to appreciate Philip Seymour Hoffman. Anytime he shows up as, like, a rich prick, you know he's having a blast. Like, he has so much fun playing assholes. It's amazing. And, and it's so fun to watch, and he's so good at it. You're like, how is he embodying this level of fucking, like... Douchery. <laughs> douchery. Pure douchery. And it's always a little bit different. Like, I, I, when I was watching it, I was thinking of, like, Scent of a Woman. He plays the same, like, rich kid prick, except it's totally different because that one's a coward, whereas this one is sort of, like, a, like slightly effeminate, but also, like... like he has a lot of swagger. Swagger. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. He, he, he's, like, slightly flamboyant, but in, like, an aggressive way. But, yeah, totally right. Like, not a wrong note in the casting. Like, everybody did such a good job. Yeah. What did you think of the last murder in the movie uh, when he kills Commodore Norrington? That broke my little heart because it's just weird how much you're rooting for him. I mean, it's so, I was like joking with my boyfriend. I was like, you know, he just needed to learn that like murdering isn't the first 
thing you do to solve a problem. You know, he doesn't have any conflict resolution skills. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. As soon as he can't just lie his way out of a problem, he murders. It's like almost comical. It's like, oop, I got a murder. <laughs> I feel like 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 one if he had murdered Gwyneth Paltrow, it would have turned into like a body comedy. Like it would have just been bodies falling out of the frame every single scene. Yeah, but it's like funny like how much I was really, really rooting for him. And it's like not even like that he was that likable. Like in the beginning of part of the movie, I sympathized with him but i also found him really cringy i yeah i had to pause a few times because like i was just like cringing so much at something he had done or said and i'm like oh dude just chill <laughs> yeah well oh my god when he's dancing in that guy's clothes oh my god that i mean that's a great scene but it's also like a hundred percent exactly what's wrong with the movie frankly like it's a great character moment but it's also like He's in a coat with no pants and a scarf and he's lip syncing along with a song in someone else's clothes. And it's just like, it it made me really uncomfortable that that was played as like a sort of, uh, that, that that was played as an uncomfortable moment. Because like, it could have just been like a fun like, oh, he's human moment. But instead it was like a weird violation kind of thing. Yeah, and that definitely felt, like, did you feel like that was related to his, like, queerness? I think it was, like, the way he was, like, playing with the scarf and, like, all gussied up. And that it was, again, aspirational, that he was in Dickie's clothes. I think that it it was definitely tied to his queerness. I want to circle back to the last murder in the movie real quick, because I... I, it broke my heart, too, because I also was really rooting for Ripley by the end in a weird way. I wanted him to, like be a mensch and like confess and then be with uh you know the commodore but after it was over i was like i i just felt like i could see so many different things he could have done in that situation you can make an argument that it's that it is that conflict resolution thing where he just doesn't know what to do other than kill people but i do feel like it was a little quick that he made that decision that it would have been just as easy for him to you know make up some lie where he's like i broke off a relationship with her i really want to avoid her can we just stay in the room for the rest of the trip and it does feel like in other parts of the movie he's very like willing to do a lot of that kind of like extreme lying and and kind of i don't know like chess play to get out of it and you're right it does feel like he kind of almost like gave up like, he was almost just, like, exhausted. Yeah, and yet, like, in his exhaustion, he commits another murder that he'll have to cover up. Yeah. It it almost felt like an unearned moment. Like, it, like it was meant to break our little hearts at the end of the movie, to send us out the theater feeling bad. And, and of course, that also plays into another problematic trope of queer love stories having sad endings. Where it's like, I think Love, Simon is probably the only example I can think of off the top of my head where, <laughs> you know, a gay love story has a happy ending. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's really, like, so rare. And I almost wonder now that you're saying it, if it was kind of him even rejecting the possibility of, like, being happy in that kind of relationship, like, in with a man. Oh, that's interesting. That's a really interesting read. I never thought of that. Well, because I think it is, it's not only that, because it is just like there's this necessity. But he keeps talking to this guy, you know, every conversation he has with him, he's like, I have this dark basement inside me and 
no one can ever get in and I want to let you in. And like also just realizing he can never tell this man what he's done. I no, I see what you mean. It's like it's conflating him, his sexuality with kind of his crimes in a way where it's like this secret I have that I can't tell you. Exactly, yeah. Which is complicated. It's Again, it's one of those things of context is really important. Like if this movie had had spitballing here, bad version take, but if it had an example of, like imagine if there was some old gay character who was happy in a relationship that would recontextualize the whole thing because then it would be saying it's not being queer, it's being Ripley that makes you fucked up. Whereas because Ripley is the only... Well, like, Ripley is one of the few queer-coded characters in the movie and he kills the other three. Oh my god, you're (laughs) totally right. Yeah, he's like... Yeah, he literally kills every queer-coded person. Yeah, like, the, the two women that he could murder are coded as straight. Oh, yeah. And he narrowly avoids killing both of them. But then the three men he kills all have, you know, gender-bending qualities to them. Like, Dickie is the object of his lust at first and is a very, like, you know... I mean, it's Jude Law. You know, he's a very pretty man. And then uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance as Freddy. He even, like, has the wrist at some times. Like, tastefully. But he is he is coded as gay. And then... Peter Smith Kingsley. I should really look up that actor's name because I just always think of him as Commodore Norrington. But he is his love interest and he he kills all of them and he is a serial killer and that's all the queer characters in the movie. Yeah. Wow. Whereas if you put like one gay side character who is happy and not involved and not murdered, that would make it a less problematic movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying because it's almost like you could walk away from the movie being like, well... If you're queer, it's either murder or get murdered. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think I was so um I was so convinced that he and Dickie would have a moment. And they kind of did in the bathtub scene. But then that felt really rejected by Dickie and then I was kind of like, "Oh, I guess." But I I, I don't know. I was really convinced until like the boat scene where I was like, that's not really the moment I was looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I kind of thought him and Dickie, I thought they had a lot of tension, but I thought Dickie would make at least slightly more of an open nod towards it. Whereas it does lend itself to an interpretation that Dickie is uh, hetero and like violently rejects Ripley's advances. Or you can read it as Dickie is too suppressed to accept Ripley's advances. But it's it's more ambiguous than I thought it would be. Yeah. Well, there's just a few scenes where they feel... there. It feels like there is a flirtatiousness. It feels like Dickie is just a flirtatious person. That he flirts with everyone. And, yeah, and he wants he only, people to be obsessed with him a little bit. Absolutely. I think that, that in the story, is that it definitely comes across that he wants everyone to be hanging on his every word and wishing that he was paying attention to them. Actually, another thing about the boat scene, um, a line that stuck out to me is when Ripley is like, do you play the drums or do you play the saxophone? Which is it? Like, make up your mind. That felt like a very obvious nod to bisexuality, like drums or saxophone, like the idea of making a choice. Oh, that's really, really funny. It's so funny you say that because I remember being like, what is this line? (laughs) Like, because it, it felt just so like his character just being like, 
kind of having a breakdown. But when you put it like that, I think that's a really, that's really smart. I think that's really true. That he's just being like, what's your fucking deal, dude? I have a fucking crush on you. Like, and maybe it's just because the name of the podcast is after another moment like that. But I feel like a lot of a lot of films with bi characters we're going to see have a line that is like an unusual euphemism for sexuality. Where it's like... Yeah, we should track that. Maybe that could be like our um, episode titles. Oh yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. This will be drums or saxophone. And then when we finally do Spartacus, it will just be snails and oysters, snails and oysters. That. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> do you want to say what it was? Yes. Yeah, so I felt guilty because I was told by this person at the PowerPoint party, it's a bi film. When after I watched it, I felt really like I don't want to appropriate a film that feels like more of a gay film because I kind of walked away from the film feeling like he was queer, but that he was really attracted to men. I don't know, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, I felt like his attraction to like Gwyneth Paltrow's character felt more in the aspirational vein where he just wanted this type of lifestyle. Um, but I don't know, cause he does say, he does say, I loved you. Um, and it does seem like they have a few moments together. It's just that it feels like the moments where he's most like tense and wants something the most are with Dickie and then with Commodore. What is Norrington. it? I'm so bad at names. Commodore Norrington. Commodore yeah. Norrington. Let's, I'm going to look up that character's name. Cause like, I always think of him as his like Pirates of the Caribbean role, <laughs> but Jack Davenport. <laughs> God, that's a good name. It's funny because when I texted you, it was because I was having this anxiety because I feel like there's such sensitivity about like not appropriating other people's sexualities or culture. So I was like, I don't want to like appropriate this film into like, you know, the bi film canon canon. Yeah. But then I was like, I feel like this is like the opposite of appropriating because who wants to take in this serial killer? character you know like it's more like we're like giving this person a this film a home and everyone else is like that's fine you can have him like yeah we, we're good we don't need any more of whatever that is yeah yeah i mean first of all totally get the concern like don't want to just be labeling things willy-nilly as bisexual and like taking away a film from another community or something like that. Yeah. Two arguments in favor of keeping this in the bi canon. <laughs> that, that we are the authorities on. We are the authorities of the bi canon. Yes. Uh, which honestly just sounds like a double-barreled canon. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, two, two arguments. One is that sexuality is never explicitly addressed in the film. He never self-identifies. Like, it's completely through euphemism. So, in a sense, we have to interpret Argument number two is, and I'm not putting this perception on you, but there is a perception that bisexual men in particular are either gay men who can't accept it and so try to date women, or they're straight men who occasionally have dalliances with men for the sheer pleasure of it. And so it's that sense of drums or saxophone, like pick one. You can't have both. Take totally, one. yeah. You're absolutely right that his his scenes with Dickie and with Jack Davenport's character, they're told through a lens of sexual tension. Like, there's a lot more explicit sexual tension. Yeah. And I, I definitely think that, like, when he tells Gwyneth Paltrow that he loves her, that's a total lie to just try to keep her from exposing him. Yeah. 
the argument I would make that he is attracted to women is with Kate Blanchett's character, Meredith, the heiress, because when he first starts pretending to be Dickie in earnest, he pursues a relationship with her for no reason. Like, you could say it's aspirational, but, like, he's not performing for anybody, and yet he still seems genuinely interested in spending time with this woman. And until Gwyneth Paltrow shows up and threatens his lie, he seems perfectly happy to go along with it. There are various arguments to be made about why he was in that relationship, but he was in it. And without any explicit confirmation, I think that we can take that at face value as genuine interest. Those are really, really good points. I didn't even think about that stereotype of bi men as not even existing, which is so true. And also, I think it could have just been, I think, that thing that happens in all humans' brains where we always want to put a very definitive label on everything. Like... (laughs) Like, maybe my brain was like, it's just easier, but I think that's a really good point. He does kiss her. Like, is it? That's the only kiss we see him do on screen, right? Yeah. Yeah, we do. He never even, like, kisses Dickie's corpse in that creepy way serial killer characters sometimes do. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, no, the only the only kiss in the movie... Well, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow and Jude Law kiss at some point, I'm sure. and that, But the only time he kisses anyone, it's Kate Blanchett on the boat. Yeah. Totally. Although, I mean, you can make the argument that he's kissing her as a cover to, like, shut her up so that she won't expose him. But... It could be both, you know, that he's like, this is fine. (laughs) Yeah, it it really feels like at the end that he's gonna kill one of the two, and the only reason he picks Jack Davenport's character is because no one knows he's on the boat. Like, whereas, like, he specifically asks Kate Blanchett, are you alone? And she's like, no, I have a shit ton of family and witnesses right here. Which is now going to be my default response if anyone asks if I'm alone. A hundred percent. That is movie survival 101. If, if anyone asks you something like, have you told anyone else about this? You say yes. <laughs> a million. I tweeted it. Sorry. <laughs> oh, hashtag whoops. How, how different would this movie be if there were Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, people would be tweeting out selfies with Dickie and see that there were two different Dickies. Yeah, he could never get away with it. That did feel like a kind of funny element of the film. I guess what? It was like in the 50s, right? Somewhere around there. It definitely felt like post-World War II. What I found interesting about it was that it felt... I guess, like, the 50s, like, as it was portrayed in this film, felt modern in the way that everyone was experiencing their feelings. Like, surprisingly modern, I think. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't even realize it was a period piece going into it because it, like, I, it never came up when anyone told me about it. Yeah, totally. But then, like, all, you're like, oh, wow, these people's lives are so far away from us materially. Just, like, you know, the excitement about getting the icebox. And, and the fact that he could just kind of, like, get away with all of this, you know, he could just, yeah, he's, like, holds up the passport photo, and he's like, this is me. Like, I was like, wow, fraud used to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah, to go back to those days where you could just, like, kill a man and take his identity so easily. Now you have to just make your own fucking way. Ugh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now fraud is a career instead of a gentleman's sport. It is so funny when he is given part of Dickie's inheritance by Dickie's dad. Oh my god. Dickie's dad. Can we just take a break to talk about how dumb that motherfucker is? Such misogyny in those last scenes with him. Yeah, that actually, like, 
took me off guard like how sexist him and the detective were like i was ready for the detective especially when i saw the actor um philip baker hall when i saw him i was like oh this guy this guy's gonna figure it out which of course you're meant to expect yeah that scene just it plays so fucking well you're just like it's over there's and i love how many points of the movie you're like it's over he's busted and it just keeps giving him like a second chance, you know? Yeah, and it reminds me, I've heard the screenwriting advice that coincidences that get your characters into trouble are good and coincidences that get your characters out of trouble are bad. But I feel like this movie actually plays the exact opposite because Ripley is such a, you know, he's sympathetic, but he's a detestable human being. And so all of the coincidences get him out of trouble and it infuriates you. But I never, it never bothered me. Like I was, whenever a insane coincidence happened, I was like, oh fuck, what's going to happen next? Not, that's cheap. Yeah, yeah. It was just so well written that you're right. There was never a moment where it felt cheap. And I think that was partially because you kind of had this sense at certain points that he wanted to be caught. Yeah. Like when the Italian inspector is like, your fiance's downstairs, should we let her in? And he's like, yeah, you know what? It doesn't even matter. Yeah. Cause in that moment, it almost feels like the reason it works is because it's kind of extending his like s- torture, you know? Yeah. Even it, though it, eventually it, like... he's like, I'm into it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You know, I just realized there is one scene where they explicitly mention sexuality uh it's the second police inspector when um yes him and jack davenport go to the police together the new inspector asks if he's a homosexual and he denies it uh but then again you know he's lying through his teeth that entire scene yeah but it, it is interesting that that is the only explicit sexual label ever used and it's when the police are accusing him of murder <laughs> no that is that's like really interesting and i think it's partly just like that would be you know, accurate to the period that people wouldn't say, like, I am gay, but they would be like, the police would be like, he's a homosexual. Right, right. Like, this is a domestic violence incident between deviants, you know, that that that, that might be the conclusion or the perspective. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to now, I feel like it's the reverse where people are much more comfortable labeling themselves. Yeah. Another reason I call this the the bisexual silence of the lambs is that I really liked this movie. Like it was really good and well made, but I have such conflicting feelings about it because of the place that it holds in the larger bi canon. The bi canon, yeah. Well, because like I guess in like zooming out, I really at, don't at all want to say that bi people have it worse than any other like queer identity identity or marginalized person absolutely it's not worse at all but there's kind of like a unique i don't know burden i don't know if you call it burden or you just call it like unique hurdles or experience that i think bi people have just with like the stereotypes that go along with being bi and also just the general like discomfort that you can feel both in like straight spaces and in queer spaces Like, I'm, for one, I like the term queer a lot because I feel like I like how much of an umbrella term it is. Yeah, as opposed to, like, LGBTQ, which can feel like alphabet soup, kind of. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, everyone's in their specific lane as opposed to just queer. Yeah, yeah. So, but definitely, like, when you pull that term, when you pull the B out of LGBTQ, like, people don't always have the best stereotype in their head, you know? 
Absolutely. And and I think you're absolutely right that it's not that like we're worse off than anybody else in the community. Like it would be ridiculous to say that. Whenever conversations about privilege or the the sort of like oppression Olympics come up where people are comparing how much people are oppressed or privileged, you know, there's a great um, essay by Roxane Gay where she talks about privilege as she's a, I believe she identifies as queer, but she's a black woman living in the United States. And she talks about how we oh, all... Nah. I know who Roxanne Gay is. No, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving context for the viewer. I'm not mansplaining Roxanne <laughs> okay, Gay to telling, you. Keep, keep talking. Dear God, can you imagine? That would be just the most insufferable thing a human being could do. <laughs> like, mansplaining Roxanne Gay. I don't think it gets worse than that. <laughs> I think it's so funny. But yeah, she, she has a great essay I forget the title of, but it's from Bad Feminist, where she's talking about how we all exist at the intersections of various identities that give us various forms and degrees of privilege. But it's not that anybody is more privileged or less privileged than other people. It's just that we all have our own experiences based on the identities that we have. And you just have to be aware of it and take ownership of it without feeling guilty about it either way. Yeah, totally. And I, I do think that you're right. Like, it's sort of like what you said earlier, where queer characters in general have the choice of murdering or being murdered. Um and for bisexuals and bisexual men in particular, that choice is there because like a lot of these, a lot of the bi men that we're going to see are going to be villains and it's you, their bisexuality is used to accentuate their villainousness, their immorality. Like, yeah, um, it's, it's almost used as this thing of like, they have no laws. They subscribe to no code, you know. Which is cool and badass and anarchist, but they're saying it like it's a bad thing. I will say, I think, and I don't know if you think this is true, like, if we are ranking oppression points or Olympics, I do think bi men have it harder than bi women. I think that you, I, that thought has crossed my mind. I think that, again, it's a matter of different, not better or worse, because bi women get sexualized to shit. Women being bi is treated as, like, sexual currency, as opposed to with men, it's just erased, which sucks in its own way. You know, looking at just popular culture jokes, like, on a, imagine a sitcom scene where a guy's like, oh, I'm dating this girl who's bi, it would be like, oh, dude, that's awesome! Whereas if a woman is like, I'm dating a, a guy who's bi, it would be like, are you sure he's not gay? Yeah, but that's so, like, you're so right that those are, like, I'm almost seeing a, like, choose-your-own-adventure type graph coming down, you know? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, sometimes, like, depending on certain spaces, I don't even say it, because I'm like, I feel like in this space, that would be interpreted as saying something, like, weirdly aggressively sexual. Just stating that fact. No, I know what you mean, where it's like, I'm bi, but I'm not hitting on you. Right, exactly. I'm bi, but I'm not, like, here, I'm not trying to, like, I'm not flashing my tits here. Like... <laughs> Like, I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable or like, yeah, but. Yeah, I always say it as like, I'm attracted to men, not attracted to all men. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. And that's why we're doing a podcast about it. <laughs> yeah, I did. I mean, to be fair, I did like no research into other bi podcasts. I think because at this point, I assume every podcast has been made. But I also am like, that doesn't mean you shouldn't make yours. I mean, maybe it does. But until they make it illegal, I will participate <laughs> at the very least we're not consciously copying anybody else because if we were we would have a much more clear game plan of what we're doing here <laughs> totally totally yeah but i do think that, but that's why i was kind of interested when you brought it up because i don't really think a lot of people talk about 
like by I don't even know that they're like if we I, I'll be curious to see if we after we watch like a dozen movies if we have a strong sense of like what a bi person in a movie is like because I almost feel like maybe it's always just going to be so different. Yeah, it does feel like they're, like... It feels like a slippery identity, I think. Yeah, it does. And I, I think it's it's both portrayed that way. And it, it kind of, like, in a... I mean, obviously I'm bi, so I'm not saying this judgmentally, but it is kind of a slippery identity to have. And maybe this is because there is no consistent portrayal of bisexuals in American media, but I don't feel like I have an image of my in my head of what a bi guy is expected to be. And, and that's both a blessing and a curse. I feel like for gay men and lesbians, there is a cultural touchstone of what's expected, and so you're subverting expectations or playing into them, and that comes with a lot of problems in and of itself. But it, at the very least, when you say you are gay, people know what that means. Whereas when you say that you are bi, people are like, huh? So do you just have threesomes all the time? What does that mean? It's like, I wish. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, because even, because what it is, is just that it's such an, I think it depending on what kind of relationship you're in, it can be very in, an internal experience. Absolutely. And I, and I think that that's partly why it gets invalidated so often. I remember once as a kid, um, I have two older sisters. This is for context for the podcast. I'm sure I've mentioned this to you before. <laughs> I have two older sisters, both of whom are also bi. Uh, and they came out in college. Oh, you guys are a triple bi. I love that. I know. My brother has his own, like, he is way overeducated. So, like, he has some sort of queerness going on with himself. But if you ask him about it, he'll give you an essay. <laughs> but yeah, I have two older sisters, both of whom are bi. When they had just come out in college... I was still in like middle school and I didn't know my ass from my elbow when it came to sexuality. I was talking to one of my sisters and I mentioned that our other sister says she's bi but seems to only date men. And I'm like, is she really bi? And my other sister said, yeah, it's really common for bisexual women to be invalidated if they date too many men. They're treated as like straight women who are going through a phase. And it just shows how easy it is to fall into that trap, you know. Partly because I was an idiot child. Yeah, it can it can lead to, because people are defining you by the relationship you're currently in. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And I, I super feel that way because I have a boyfriend and it, we've been together for more than two years. I don't really know. I don't know. Uh, I might have to find a new co-host for this podcast in this case. I, know, I think that you're, I think you're straight. <laughs> but it's funny because when I met him... I met him at a party, and at the time, I was, like, on Tinder, but, like, had it only set for women. Like, I never would have met him on Tinder, which he's like, it's so good we met at a party. Because like, <laughs> I never would have swiped for you because your settings. But, like, it's been interesting to see in how much it's shifted, like, when I first started dating him, still feeling very, like, comfortable in queer spaces because I had been very recently dating women and queer people. And then, like, now two years in, I'm like... I, I joined, like, a queer women book club, and all the women who joined are actually, like, identify as lesbians, and I felt so, like, do I belong here? Should I, like, is the ethical thing to do to leave this book club? But then I felt so frustrated, because I was like, I am queer, like... <laughs> Yeah, like, no, I know that it happens in my brain, it's, like, the way I relate to other people and the world, it's, like, 
romantic and sexual feelings that just happen in my brain you know yeah it's it's internal yeah totally anyways not all this has to go in the podcast but i'm just setting no i think it should this is great yeah just setting up context because i'm like talking about my boyfriend but i'm like i promise you i'm queer like i could produce a list (laughs) like i was just gonna say i feel like as a as a as a bi person in particular, I feel like you have to have a fucking, like, resume of people you fucked. Like, you have to, like, take out your CV anytime somebody asks for it, as opposed to just being like, no, this is who I am, screw you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is weird, which, like, and I feel like, (laughs) you know, Tom Ripley's list would be weird, because it'd be like, these are people I was interested in who are now dead. Yeah, that's that's the next stage of bisexuality, the list of people you've killed. Yeah, yeah. You're you're only bi if you've killed one person and taken over their identity. <laughs> All right. I think uh I think it's time for us to close out with a game of Mary Fuck Kill, don't you? Okay, yes. I I was thinking about this ahead of time. And I was thinking if we're going to do Mary Fuck Kill, we need three characters and Ripley kills three people in the movie. So let's play Mary Fuck Kill with uh, Tom Ripley's three murder victims. Okay. So we have, for context, we have Dickie Greenleaf, the uh, sort of arrogant playboy. We have his friend, Freddie Miles, who's sort of the, like, uh, douchey, like, bro-y, but also kind of, like, flamboyant type. And then we have the sweet, saintly Peter Smith Kingsley, who is Ripley's last hope for happiness. Um, played by intern Jude Law, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Jack Davenport. I have my answer, so I want you to go first, Allie. Okay. I would definitely fuck Jude Law's character. He seems to be purely interested in a good time. Um, <laughs> I would kill Philip Seymour Hoffman's character because I just found him annoying. Um, although maybe I should marry him because he'd take me all over Rome. But um, Then I would marry Peter Kingsley, although I don't know if he would want me, but maybe we would have like a 50s-style beard marriage. <laughs> But honestly, Nat, I just want to marry Marge. Like, poor Marge. Poor Marge. Just wanted to, like, be married and write her novel. I would love to be there for Marge as she writes her novel every day and I help her recover from the tragedy of losing Dickie, you know? Oh my god, that's so true. Poor Marge, honestly. Marge really goes through the ringer. And also, she's right, you know? Like, she's so right at the end. She's the only one who sees through Ripley in the end. And, oh, God, it's so tragic, the way that she's ignored and sidelined. Uh, what also sucks is that I have the exact same answers for the Mary Fuck Kill. I would fuck the shit out of Jude Law with his, like, open Aloha shirt. Like, fuck it, come on. <laughs> and then I would marry Jack Davenport, that sweet composer goth boy. Oh, God. And I I wouldn't even have to worry if he was interested in me, because it's pretty clear that he's gay. <laughs> And then, yeah, I, at least by process of elimination, I would kill Philip Seymour Hoffman. But also, he's a sexist pig, so fuck him. Yeah, yeah, totally. It, it is, they, they sort themselves out, you know? It's, Except in Ripley's case, it's kill, kill, kill. Oh, yeah. It's, it's kill, kill, kill. That's good. That's good. All right. Um, any closing thoughts on the movie? Um, I just think it was great. I think, and I think it, you know, I'll take it into the bi canon, you know? I accept it. Yeah. <laughs> we we will take this one I accept for the, the sociopath as you know for who for who he is yeah because yeah, I mean we can make the argument I keep saying we can make the argument I'll just make an argument that like part of the reason he becomes a murderer is because he's so deeply repressed in his deeply homophobic times yeah 
Absolutely. Yeah. My closing thought is that we should also include this ca- this in the canon of rich white boys who like jazz. <laughs> yeah, Matt Damon and Jude Law first bond over their shared love of jazz. And it's... Oh, that was the most modern aspect of the movie, that <laughs> this rich dilettante thinks that he can be a jazz musician. Yes. Do we know what movie is next? Have we decided? Oh, yeah, we should do a plug for the next episode like professionals would. <laughs> Do you want to do Portrait of a Lady on Fire next? Okay, here's what's hard. I'm having the same doubt I had about the last movie. Like, is it bi or is it gay? Yeah, I'm like, is this actually, does this belong to the lesbian canon of films? But maybe it's, I would say it's totally beyond worth watching. Like, it's worth watching every year of your life to remember what beauty is. So I definitely want you to watch it. I say let's, if it's ambiguous, let's watch it. That, that should be our rule of thumb, because I don't think we're going to have a lot of explicit examples of bisexual characters in movies. We're going to have to take the ambiguous ones, too. Totally. That's a good point. Great. Well, All right. Bye, Talk Matt. Talk to you later. Yeah, stay, stay safe. <laughs> yeah, stay safe. <laughs> our, the new parting of all time. Thanks for listening to Snails and Oysters, created by Nat Roberts and Allie Rogers, with music by Billy Libby. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't tell us.